This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, also for little cuties grappling with issues of community and maturity. Today we're talking about Reservation Dogs, the dramedy about indigenous teens created by Sterling Harjo and Taika Watiti that premiered in 2021 and just wrapped up its third and final season. I'm Mark Lintzemeyer, hoping for a spirit guide, but some catfish would be fine, I guess. I'm Al Baker of extremely consistent quality, but wildly varying tone. I'm Sarah Lynn Bruck, on the mend after consuming too many stolen bags of Flaming Flamers hot chips. I'm Lawrence Ware, and I'm from Oklahoma, which is where this show is from. Have you been on this kind of reservation? I was just listening to an interview with Sterling Harjo, who grew up in Oklahoma, still lives in Oklahoma, and says there are, what, you know, a dozen tribes within, you know, spinning distance of Oklahoma City that they're not all considered reservations, but it's to the point of different languages on the street signs. Yes, I have been in a place very similar to this. My family owns land in a place very similar to this, the Choctaw Nation. It's a big land area. It's not exactly like in a concentric area like this one is. As people who are longtime listeners of the podcast know, I am a native. And so, yeah, I know a lot about this kind of stuff. Well, all right. Wonderful show, obviously, and groundbreaking. Good show. Thumbs up. That in, mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah groundbreaking yes. in, in many ways. But who wants to start with something? It seems like Al has disparaging things to say. So we <laughs> should probably hear from him relatively here soon. But go ahead, Sarah. No, no, no. I think I wanted to hear what Sarah Lynn has to say because she's been talking about this show for ages. I have been. I love this show so much. I, I did kind of wanted to maybe start with that sense of place that this show gives us and how it it sort of just drops us the viewer in without any context or anything like that other than what you may or may not know ahead of time about these communities. I just wanted to hear what you guys had to say, you know, about the sense of place and how that really added to the whole feel of the of the show. The show feels incredibly rooted in a particular reality. And that's one of the things that strikes me most about it is it's really, it's obviously there's not a community. Well, maybe, maybe not obviously, but I don't happen to know any Native Americans. There aren't a lot of them in Yorkshire. So this is a culture that I know, I know extremely little about uh, and I'm extremely unfamiliar with. But watching the show, it feels so grounded and consistent in its attitudes to Native American culture, and it feels incredibly real. It feels like a really consistent perspective, their own culture and on like America and on like ideas about community and family and, and all the rest of it, which is remarkable given how, how unfamiliar I am with it, how easy it was to kind of adopt the perspective of the show because it came from such a clearly rooted, grounded and real place it was able to keep a very, very solid understanding of what it was trying to say about about Native American community. Where it was set was where it was filmed. That really seemed to give it just that sense of place. The fact that it wasn't on a big soundstage, it wasn't filmed on a soundstage, or it wasn't saying it was Oklahoma when it was really Atlanta or Vancouver or something like that, it really, to me, added to what the story was, you know, it felt like that was kind of like the fifth friend was the, you know, kind of like sex in the city, you know, the, the fifth character or the fourth character was New York city. It felt like this was just as much a part of the show as all of the main characters. The way you phrased your question, the sense of place, like I feel like it should be 
or I should have sensed it as a, you know, a love story to the land or something like that. And I really didn't get that because the characters were such big presences, were so overwhelming. And most of the time they spend is like on a few kind of dingy streets. And like they do go out in the forest sometimes. And that's a, a big thing. But it's not like this is a cinematically shot show in particular. I don't know. At least that's, you know, the the characters and the music even much more overwhelm. And I think I feel like when I think of what the environments are here, I think of Bear's bedroom filled with all this crap. And then Alora's bedroom, which is people looking through each other's windows into their bedrooms like specifically. And these community center sitting around locations, not so much the wide open vistas. It does a good job of capturing what Oklahoma is like. Oklahoma does have beautiful landscape and whatnot, but the show's not really interested in that. The show's interested in the people more often, but it does do a good job of like situating you in a certain time and place. I think it does a really good job of that. However, I don't know. I don't have a strong relationship to like the land of that. I don't think they care much about the land necessarily. They care more about the characters, as, as Mark has already said. But it does do a good job of like situating you in a particular like cultural time, uh, a cultural kind of milieu. But I don't get that much about the land, Sarah. I just don't. I don't get much about the land. But I, I definitely get a lot about the culture, though. I wonder if the, maybe the culture and the land are so intertwined that, at least for me, the stories that I was seeing, you know, it was something at first for them to want to leave, right? It was something yeah, that they definitely. didn't want to have anything to do with. And then throughout the course of the series, it was something for them to come back to. And it became, it was their home, you know? And right. home, definitely. It, home is what your home is. It looks different for everybody. It doesn't make it any less important or any less um, something that's that's going to be like a magnet for you to come back to. It's very hard to leave your home when you're young. I I loved this story as a, you know, as a coming of age story of all four of these teenagers. Gosh, I mean, even though, you know, like, you know, as a white person who grew up in California, like I can't really speak to how real it was, you know, the show was, but I was a teenager at some point, you know, I was somebody who had friends. I had my own community. I have aunties and uncles and extended family who were and weren't related. And I don't know, I just thought it was such a beautiful depiction of of that age. It was something that even though there was stuff about it that I don't relate to, that most of it I actually felt like I did. The way, as you say, they just they just throw you in. And like the, some of the first characters you see are the twin little people bike riding rappers, which like, what an intersection that is. (laughs) Like how rare to find. Let me say though, that is very true to that culture. Believe it or not, people who are like hip hop and very cool and whatnot, but still like very different. Like that is true to life. Well, and the the combination of being, oh, we're badass rappers, but we're riding around seemingly aimlessly on our, our huffies or, you know, on our little bikes up and down the street, you know, and, and by the end, then, then you're like, all the characters are just so endearing. But again, like the people at the junkyard, they're introduced as this criminal element. In fact, I think the whole beginning of the show, because they want to give the character somewhere to grow, 
is misdirection is like, oh, this is going to be like a Quentin Tarantino thing, given the name and who they're in a gang. But it seems like that dissolves. Maybe it's just been a while since I saw the first season, but it seems like that kind of gets out of the air pretty quickly. And that's not what most of the show is about at all. No. I mean, even in the first, I did a rewatch of the first episode right before I watched the final episode. And I like seeing some of the parallels, like that whole drone shot, you know, at the beginning of the last episode, they had something very similar at the beginning of the first episode. But even still, like those characters, all four of those characters are trying to steal a truck. You know, they're trying, they're engaged in criminal activity. Yet at the same time, Bear is telling Alora to put our seatbelt on. You know, they're still like these good kids who are just doing bad things. And who doesn't know kids like that? You know, like when you were in, in school, like I always knew kids who grew up to be just fine, who did some bad things when they were little. And who knows, maybe I did a few bad things too. That might have been me. me once upon a time. <laughs> I absolutely was that guy. Honestly, <laughs> the story, what's really unique about the story is just that Native Americans very rarely get to tell stories about their culture. But this is honestly just a coming-of-age tale. It really is. It's just what's so unique about it is that it's situated in a culture that oftentimes is marginalized in the storytelling kind of populace. It's very clever. It's very well-made. It's very well-situated, a well-written, acted pretty good. I mean, I got some issues with some of the acting, but it's acted pretty good. What's so unique about it is that it's coming from a culture that is oftentimes just not represented yeah, let's talk about the casting and the characters. I mean, I think the the four main kids are just so good and they're so cute and there's just you just could watch these them all day and and the the dialect that they're using that apparently that's just how they t- like that these people are not putting on this. They're from this community and this is just according to the creator, more or less the way they speak. Nobody's putting on an accent. There's no British guy that's smuggled as in the case with too many shows these days aren't three of the leads from canada and one cheese is originally from that area but yeah i mean i I think that they actually did quite an extensive search for this casting which i don't know actually for me i think that's really exciting that they made it look like these are kids that are just plucked from that area that's how how well done this show is but no they had to cast it just like any other show. Is it with the various minor characters that some of them are so naturalistic that it just look, it does seem like maybe they picked people that just lived in the area to like, oh, do you want to be a grandma on this thing? Or do you feel like... Yeah, I thought a huge amount of the secondary characters just looked like people that they found while they were Definitely. while they were forming, Definitely. which I really uh, I really loved. Even I mean, maybe it did genuinely seem like those midget twins on bikes had just been like cycling <laughs> Rolling around, around. For, yeah, absolutely. for years. <laughs> The characters are amazing. I think it's really interesting, Sarah Lim. I want to get back to something that you said right at the beginning, which is that this show is so much about place, but the first kind of story element that we get introduced to is the idea that they want to leave. And the first two series, the whole show, right, is about them trying to get away and like what happens when they do. It kind of interspersed with really deep and sensitive portrayals of elements of the community that they're going to be leaving behind. 
who here is from? Because we don't, we do have this phenomenon, but it's very, it's it's an extremely American phenomenon. The idea of needing to leave the shitty place that you've grown up in to kind of get somewhere else. And it's not California for everyone in the show because there's that excellent episode with the parents where they go to the conference and one of them's talking That's about New right. York. That's right. Um, <laughs> but everyone wants to like get away or has an excuse for not wanting to leave. Is anyone here from like somewhere where they thought that they just had to get away from? How does this show resonate with that? Do you all love your hometowns? Because I'm from California, and California is basically full of people who escaped <laughs> their hometowns to go and live. And the fact that I grew up there and actually left eventually, mostly because I couldn't afford it, is kind of an anomaly. But my dad's side of the family lived, there were certain parallels I could see from my dad's side of the family who lived in Arkansas. They're deep in poverty, and during, and they were in basically the Dust Bowl. And during that time, they fled because otherwise they would starve. And they moved out to California for the great opportunity of picking fruit <laughs> and working as maids in people's homes. But that was a great opportunity for them. And it was really, really difficult for them to leave. And I don't think my grandmother thought of California as her home, even though she lived there eventually for most of her life, she always thought of Arkansas as her home. And I could really see in this show how difficult it was for all four of them trying to navigate their relationship with where they grew up, with who they saw themselves as, as emerging adults. That's something that really, really resonated with me. And I could see those parallels between my white family and my family ended up, you know, they didn't stay in poverty for long, you know, and moving to California ended up being a very good move for them. But I understand those ties that many people have to those communities because this was a place in the show. They were rich in community. They may not have been in rich in other things, but they were very, very rich in community. Right. Of course, that's the whole arc of the, the moral is you had the power all along. The end of the rainbow is in your own hometown. Is It seems like they said that almost literally that enough times that it should have struck me as cheesy and it never did. So I feel like that is a real accomplishment. <laughs> so death is very prevalent in the show. The whole thing is founded on this trauma of a death by suicide that, you know, is very skillfully worked up to actually showing what happened. Yeah. What did you guys make of the, uh, certainly it again, sort of the beginning and the end of the show and several times in the middle, you know, the grandmother funeral, there, there were multiple funerals going on. Clearly they're trying to get across and successfully that like death and tragic death and suicide is just an integral part of the reality of these communities. I think that the way they went through it, all it was like there was trauma there, but it was all very everybody had plenty to go around. None of it was surprising. It was a part of the really interesting perspective of the show on the community that it was talking about because there was so much because it did show that there was so much to love about it, but it didn't flinch away from the fact that this is a place of where terrible things happen to people who don't deserve it and people are often miserable and people die too young. And it manages to hold that intention with the affection it has for the place and the community and the and the sensitivity it shows as well that kind of nuance 
that particular kind of irreverence is something that you could only get when a show or a, or a piece of art is made as clearly from the perspective of the people who the story is about, right? That's the kind of tone and that, that's the kind of thing that you can get when people do get to tell their own stories in as complete a way as this. Because I don't think I've ever seen anything about Native American culture, at least, which is irreverent in that kind of way. I think the tone is a real groundbreaking thing here because it's not all miserable and it's not all brilliant and it's not just one and then the other. The two affect one another. Again, ground it in a really impressive sense of reality. Yeah, you'd mentioned, Al, wanting to talk about this as the Taika Waititi vibe, you know, that this is a fundamentally new type of humor that seems to be have been added to the culture and is now he's doing many projects so this uh, sort of cringe wacky but generally very endearing i was watching this like as a taika watiti production but i don't feel like it is really a taika watiti but i think taika watiti's big contribution seems to be like having got it made in the first place and like clearly choosing or hiring some very talented people to be involved, but it doesn't feel like his sense of humor is running through the show or his like creative direction is is running through it particularly, which I think is great because he's not Native American, right? He's a native from elsewhere in the world. So probably best that way. I felt Taika Waititi's fingers on the show much heavier in the first season, but then it really fell off season, the latter seasons. But even then, it wasn't overwhelming, but you felt a little bit of the sprinklings of him. But one of the things, so to go back to what you were talking about, about death, Mark, one of the things, the show is not preachy about the things that have been done to Native Americans to put them in the positions that they are in. But if you know a little bit about that, you see it everywhere. You see the ramifications of just there being a reservation. And you see the ramifications of the education system being underfunded. The misery is the misery that is born of their interactions with white people. Like that's the reason why they're miserable. Um, But the show's not preachy about that. It doesn't get on a soapbox and say, this is the reason why we're going to have a very special episode and talk about these kinds of things. It's there in the background. Sometimes it steps forward, but then it steps back. Like, it's there, weaved throughout the entire narrative. But I could easily see a person just watching the show and be like, yo, the reservation, that life kind of sucks. I wonder why. Right? You know, so I can see how the show kind of does that. It doesn't really step out and say a lot about it. But if you do a little bit of digging, it's right there. And so I think that's how the show kind of deals with death. Because you're right that the show is very clear that a lot of these people are miserable, And so sometimes it leads to people taking their own lives. These kids are miserable. They want to get out of there. And that's like the driving force about them trying to leave, but it being so hard to leave. I like that the show trusts the viewer to be able to catch themselves up if they want, if they need to. And so, yes, there's a lot of death, but you can also start making the connections that, oh, Maybe there's a problem here with resources. There's a problem here with mental health. There's a problem here with seeking that help. So with these communities who have a lack of resources, we're able to kind of connect those dots on our own. And I love that the show forces us to do that. I think that's far more effective, actually, than coming right out and giving us that very special episode kind of feel. 
we don't need that. And it's far more powerful that they don't do that. Right. There's no character in current time of the show who like becomes an addict. I don't want to say soap opera things, but, but you know, it, it definitely could have been much more. Uh, That's exactly how it would have been handled in another time. Like, you know, you go back 10, 20 years ago, you have a Native American character. That person is going to be an alcoholic. He's going to be dealing with domestic abuse, all that kind of stuff. And like in a very soap opera kind of way. Now, that is a little bit of what's happening in the show in the background. So some of the characters are dealing with like diabetes and there's like a link between resources and diabetes and why Native Americans have diabetes. Same thing going on with black folks, right? In the background, there are characters who they're not drunks, but like you can tell something's going on, right? But it's in the background. In an older time, the main character would be one Native American character. He would have been a drunk and a diabetic and a drug user. And he'd have been dealing with domestic abuse at home. Like, so I'm happy that the show just allows it to be in the background, to be like a real slice of life kind of story, as opposed to jumping out and making it a big deal in the forefront. I mean, it's a pretty pro pot show. It is. It is absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I'm pro pot. I'm pro pot. So that's fine. I have no and sometime problem. We'll do a We'll do a marijuana culture show. But, you know, it wasn't about this, of course. But a good example of that, which you're talking about, Lawrence, is Willie Jack's aunt, you know, Daniel's mother, who's in jail. And the fact that she's in jail, that is not her whole identity. That is not how we understand this character. She just happens to be in jail. But the conversations that she has, those two beautiful conversations that she has with Willie Jack and really helping Willie Jack and how Willie Jack perceives her aunt as someone who is healing. I think that that is actually a pretty revolutionary way to view these characters. Let's stop for various messages. There's a great podcast from Consequence Media, The Opus. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. Join host Adam Unsey as he examines how masterpieces continue to evolve. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener curious to hear more. They cover albums like Allison Chain's Dirt, Billy Joel's The Stranger, The Fugees' The Score, Cypress Hill's self-titled record, Whitney Houston's Whitney Houston, and Janis Joplin's Pearl. Listen to The Opus wherever you get your podcasts. The spirit guy, I mean, speaking of that character, you have a few people who see the spirits. I think when I put on Facebook, I was maybe thinking maybe we would need another guest and somebody immediately chimed in who has you know native ancestry and was like, well, the spirit that the guy talks to in the first thing is just a cliche Indian symbol, which I think was the point, you know, that it's not like this kid is having fantasies that are historically accurate, you know, but, you know, it was not even from an area that was around there which I decided, like, I don't know if that kind of critique, it doesn't help me enjoy the show. <laughs> you know, I feel like it has enough of a pedigree that I'm not going to care if they're, I will say that anything like that must be an artistic choice. But yeah, what do we think about this? whole? You know, let's use in particular this comical spirit to actually deliver like straight on good advice. Well, he's hilarious. I mean, that's part of the show is that it's hilarious. This show is so funny. You know, it's, it does deal with some very, very dark subject matter, but it is hilarious. And the spirit is hilarious. I do love that he mixes up these really interesting messages with just being this bumbling guy. <laughs> right. I mean, I'll say this. 
There's a documentary called Real Engine, R-E-E-L-I-N-J-U-N, Real Engine. And that documentary does a really good job of laying out the history of how Hollywood has used Native Americans. And one of the things that it talks about is the way that that white people talk about spirit animals and the way that white people talk about wanting to be, like have a Native American name and Native American like stuff going on with them. And growing up here, the elders oftentimes had relationships with the spirits. But us young people were looking at them like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what are you talking about? We, we don't believe that kind of stuff. Like, that's not something that is like it's in the culture, but we don't genuinely believe it. It's like being raised in a Christian household and your grandparents love Jesus and all the kind of stuff. And you're young and you're like quasi atheist and you kind of don't believe it, but you go along with it because it's your culture. That's how the Native Americans are. And so what I read that as a like a contemporary read of how. Native American culture is oftentimes represented like Native American culture is oftentimes represented as everyone believes that stuff is real. Everyone believes that stuff is, you know, genuinely what's going on. And the makers of the show, like they put it in because it's part of the culture, but they poke fun at it because we also don't take it very seriously. And so it pays homage to the elders while also kind of winking at the younger folks. And I love that. I think that's a really, really smart way to kind of handle a character like that because the show is kind of playing with magical realism. And so it drops in stuff like that. But in the real world, it really doesn't have much to say about that. Like the spirit character gives them good advice, but they have to make their own decisions. And so I think that's a good way to kind of kind of handle that. Yeah, I like the treatment of, of Bigfoot where somebody points out like, this is not even the right part of the country for Bigfoot. Why would there be Bigfoot here? But yet there's such like a conspiracy theory culture among some of the characters that like, oh, of course there's Bigfoot, you know, and then the magical realism part, like, oh yeah, there's whole Bigfoot families. They're just right, you know, just to add a little comic magical thing that doesn't actually disrupt the plot in any way. The sense I got from the from the magical realist elements was that it was their way of showing the absurdity of some of those elements was it was a particular kind of irreverence that they were showing towards their own culture. And, and I think probably due to the fact that the show is centered around teenagers, we're getting a kind of relatively sophisticated teenage perspective on Native American culture that they would have grown up in. But I also thought that, that the way they used that was an interesting way of showing how the mythology and the religious elements of, of Native American culture are present throughout the community whether you, you personally believe in them or not, they shape the place that you live so that it all impacts you in one way or another. It seems like, like the way they use the dear lady in particular seems to be, whether it's real in the reality of the show or not, it's an important part of what's happening. So that was the closest to a very special episode is we're going to flash back and show what it was like in one of these orphanages where people were taken away from their families and forced to not speak their native tongue and things. So that was just much more blatant let's actually show you some of the history uh i mean i guess this is part of the general what you guys thought of the way that season three went in just like ted lasso we're gonna focus on a wider array of characters if you just want to know how the four teens were dealing with the death of their friend well they've sort of gotten to the the end of that by the end of season two so in season three we're gonna just open things up and have it 
all about the parents. We're going to have a flashback to the 70s. I love that episode. And this heartbreaking one about the orphanage. That was heartbreaking. And I liked the whole thread with Dear Lady throughout the series. I didn't feel that one was preachy, though. I just felt like we needed, we were getting into a glimpse into her backstory and why she's making these appearances and her relationship to um, Officer Big and kind of how she shaped some of these characters in the community. I Learning about her background, I thought, was actually a really important piece to the series. Yeah, they definitely earned the right to that brutality. So in, when the episode opened, my joke was about wildly varying tone. And we've we've covered all of the reasons why that is. Like, as Mark said, they spend the first couple of episodes saying, look at all these wacky characters. And then they drop you into a suicide, like slap man in towards the end of the, the series. So it, I felt like lurched around quite a bit by the show, but it didn't feel unearned. It just felt really brutal when they did pull you in the, in, in the dark direction because everything was fine a minute ago. Well, and you pretty much binged the whole, all the part of it that you watched, right? In the last few weeks, or had you been watching this? All yeah, long? I didn't get like the last four episodes or something. I didn't manage to get a hold of in time, but yeah, I watched most of it over the last week. That's an interesting approach to that. I, I imagine that watching it like that, it would be pretty brutal because when you go week to week, you kind of get a reprieve from it. So like you'll get a heavy episode and then the next episode will be lighthearted. And so it won't be, it won't be that heavy because death is such a theme. Death is like a best friend that's hanging out just outside of the frame with this show. Like death is really there and the desperation is there as well. I think that's right. Don't watch it like I did because another thing about the show, another big theme of the show is like boredom and tedium and the absurdity associated with being in a place where there is literally nothing to do. So the pacing between episodes is weird because every single episode is like nothing is happening and then something happens and then nothing is happening again. So you have these two stretches of nothing happening if you're binge watching them. Save your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel like with this plot diaspora that there should have been more of like the rival gang? Pretty interesting characters. Like I could have spent more time with them. I think the show went in a better direction. I like the fact that by the end of the first season, definitely by the second, it felt like every episode was a self-contained story, more or less. And sometimes it was moving on the main plot a bit, but usually we got to know a particular character really well and we got to like see an element of the community. We got to make like some point or another and one of the characters got to have like a good little story moment. And I really liked that by the end of the first season, there didn't seem to be much of a like through line other than vaguely let's get to California sometime i really like the episodic storytelling the mark maron one was that in the third season too that was yeah. the second that was season. second season okay so yeah even by this point it was we're gonna show these different theaters of action possible experiences one could go through connected with the community but not you know not completely part of it that episode the cheese episode and how he ended up with the woman that he was nice to at the beginning of the the older woman that he was nice to from the first season and now she became kind of his grandma was lovely. We should just say it's in a, it's in a halfway house, right? For kids or a, a, it's set in a halfway house. Yeah. That he was sent to. Yeah. It's awful. And Mark Maron's character is he's never forcing been more all of these yes. like, <laughs> yeah, he was wonderful. these recovery language onto these kids. <laughs> don't know what he's talking about. A bunch of the guest stars, like, this is the best. I feel like I've seen a bunch of Ethan Hawke in the last decade, and this was the best thing that he had done, being one of the characters 
fathers who was introduced uh, at the end oh, yeah. of a particular episode area you know, at the near the end of the show. And Graham Greene. Oh, he was so good. Who sees star people? I honestly think that that people loved this show so much that they were coming on to take those little kind of bit roles. Like, I think they just really, really enjoyed it. And they just wanted kind of to, to join in any way. It's very similar to what I saw with Top Boy and a character that was on that show. Like, it's just if a person really loves the show, they'll come on for a bit part. Because they just want to be a part of the creative experience and they get to see that stories that are oftentimes not being told, they're helping to, you know, tell that story. Did you like the Bill Burr one or was that one a little too, <laughs> too much as the driving instructor? As the, the, uh... <laughs> I thought it was, I thought that was fine. It was I okay. Really like, I really like that. I mean, I guess it was. Mark Maron kind of... just chewed the scenery off though. It was great fun. <laughs> right. He, he did, really yes. did. I honestly didn't know that he could be that good of an actor. Legitimately. Have you not seen like, Glow? No, I never. Oh, he is in Glow. I forgot about that. You're right. He is good in that show. That's right. R.I.P. Glow. I'm sad that sh- that show ended, by the I way. I know. It did. It wasn't. It was not treated very fairly. It needed one more season. Just one more season to wrap up the story. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the third season because it was so different. It did ended up, you know, kind of extending its reach to all of these other members of the community and, and making connections, I thought, between all of the aunties and the uncles and the elders to the kids. And I wondered, Al, you had said before at the beginning that you thought it was a little disjointed or what did, what were your thoughts about it? No, I thought it developed from kind of one thing into another, not in a particularly jarring way that just the, the first death and a couple of the more harrowing moments were just because of the lighter tone of the show kind of hit really hard. But no, I don't think it was jarring in particular. I do think it changed the kind of show that it was through the course of the first season though. Okay. I did not love the third season. Loved the first two seasons. The third season, I really didn't like what they were doing. I thought that the Dear Lady episode was a standout. It was astoundingly good. It didn't really do what it wanted to do. It tried, and I appreciated trying because I always appreciate a show trying to do what it's doing. The third season kind of left me wanting it to do something else. What do you wish that they had done differently? I don't know. I mean, I like the Dear Lady episode. I just wish that they had kind of continued doing in the third season what they had done the first two seasons. Um, And maybe that's me being a simplistic consumer of media. And maybe I'm not allowing a a, a filmmaker or showrunner to kind of take a show in its own direction. Maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, just I'm looking over the episode list because I I watched most of season two and three in a fairly continuous lump over the last month or so. And so, yeah, some of the things of the aunties going out, you know, this diaspora of plot was already happening right in the second season, you know, as if this was something that was necessary. If it wasn't going to be just like, I don't know, welcome back, Cotter, where we were going to just focus on just those kids and their wacky adventures. Like if they were going to do realistic things, they're going to be going off in different directions. And then the the further choice to let's focus on the characters that they've been interacting with, which a number of them, you could have a whole show around Big the Cop. <laughs> I would watch I would that love show. To see the, yeah, let's have a spinoff. <laughs> I would love to see the group from the 70s. I would love to see a show that that's about them. Laura's mom dying in that car wreck was so 
heartbreaking and just seems so, uh, so unnecessary, but she was young. But I would love to see, you know, go back into that world and take a look at all the drama that's happening between all those folks. Because they were interesting. The elders were just, I just loved them, especially in that last episode, seeing them all together. For some reason, I'm a sucker for any of like, oh, here's the young versions of the same characters that you've seen old or whatever. Like that, just the fact that they have to cast it and I'm trying to, you know, like the, the show Dark that was all about, it was a time travel show where there's like three different versions of every character. Just even try to keep straight. Well, who's, wait, is that that person? Who's, because <laughs> I don't remember clearly enough, just like the names of the characters. So that just calling the young person by the old character's name is going to immediately make me focus on this. So, Lawrence, did you feel like that 70s flashback episode, that that was just kind of a distraction? I enjoyed it. One of the best parts of the show is the old people, is the background characters. Like, that really made the show feel really homely. The 70s episode, it was fine. I just wish that they had drilled down and spent more time with the characters we grew to love and the actors that we grew to love. Well, I wonder if it's just that all four of them came together at the end of the second season. And when they all finally return to Oklahoma, they have to kind of each individually reconcile with the fact that they're becoming adults and they're all having to make their own choices and they're all having to respect each other's choices, whether it's to stay and serve the community or go to school or find a job, take a gap year. They need to figure it out, but also understand that that doesn't mean that they're not friends anymore, which I don't think that those characters would have said that in the first season. I think it did serve their arcs at the end. Was it maybe too tidy that not only are we going to get the old people together and, you know, with the mentally ill alien seeing one who's been brought back by a spirit intervention with them and the main gang and the rival gang are now all best buddies. I don't know. Did that seem earned or was that like, we're just trying to wrap things up a little too tightly? I was cool with it. I guess we're spoiling the crap out of everything. (laughs) I mean, yeah, we are. It felt a little tidy. I do not want Sarah to get mad at me because she will come to Oklahoma and she will beat me up or she'll cough on me and give me COVID something. I don't know. (laughs) I don't want that to happen. But for me, it was fine. I just don't think that that's, that's not how life is. That's not how life is. I enjoyed it, but I didn't believe it. Well, yeah, I guess that's partly why I was like, I don't understand the rival gang characters well enough. White Steve being what a particularly funny, <laughs> just calling him that and that that actor. That's what we would call him. That's what you would call a yeah. dude like that. That's what you would do. You would call him White Steve. And the fact that it was him and the sort of leader, the woman who has got some character development, then the other two guys, I just didn't even know who they were by the end. Like, I still didn't, don't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't spend a lot of time developing those characters. Jackie. Jackie got some good screen time. She did. No one else did, though. And I guess she and Bear? Is that what was implied by the end? It wasn't. It's, is, it's is that, such is that a significant. Is that what you thought? By I the last know. scene, it made it sure made me think that. But she's so saying goodbye to his mom. To have something that would be that significant in a soap opera sort of setting that we're just not even going to bother. Like, it's just not the point. (laughs) Life goes on. Everybody's probably going to have sex with everybody else at some point in this small community. (laughs) Wow, Mark. (laughs) You just went there, huh? (laughs) Any significant things that you felt like 
Yo, here's one, one that I really liked. They go to a cultural center and the people who are putting on the sort of performance of celebrating native culture who I guess are not from around the, anyway, they're, you know, they're doing things that are sort of the right things to do to celebrate, the, but it's so cringe inducing and so cheesy. And the kids are just a little dumbfounded by the whole thing. I thought that was a great juxtaposition. That was in the second season, right? Yeah. That was real funny. And I guess most pointedly, a uh, kind of a joke about how like attempts to, I don't know, what are you doing? Honoring, valuing, like promoting Native American culture. They're enforced from a kind of central authority or from like a well-meaning institutional authority just comes across as ridiculous to people who properly belong there. It was incredibly absurd. Did we get the, what was the joke about? I mean, the joke about the the woman who was giving the, the lectures is that she she wasn't authentically Native at all or like hard, hardly she was from California, I think, Sarah Lynn, and that was, I think that was the joke. What was the other guy's deal? I don't remember. I see the name of the were episode they influencers was. Influencers or something? Yeah, they were both social media influencers because the guy had been DMing them. Right, right. Decolonativization is the name of the episode. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yes, these attempts to intellectualize the experience. So, putting that together with the character cheeses giving his pronouns whenever he meets anybody that this is sort well, of I was going to say cuz the show the show's not hostile to identity politics take on on imperialism and colonization and all the rest of it because isn't it she's in, in in that episode who says one of them one of them says oh, he asked them what they mean by decolonization and they give a like a crappy answer and he says no I understand what colonization is I'm asking why what you did helped yeah the show isn't hostile to identity politics at all but it's certainly hostile to Maybe just to social media influences. <laughs> As it should be. Well, As it should it's be. an acknowledgement that there are just so many damaging depictions of marginalized cultures. Even well-meaning ones can still be damaging. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the target, right? Is the history of white people trying to make this kind of show before. Another bit was the uh, when the bear's mother runs into the uh, native fetishist guy who's like <laughs> that she sleeps with, and then oh, yeah. and then is scared off by his fetishy Tattoo. ways. <laughs> <laughs> this show made me laugh so hard sometimes. All right. Well, I guess if the only thing to do in continuing this is just you remember this part. That was funny too. You remember that part? Yeah. <laughs> All right, then I, I think that means it's time for us to stop. So any closing thoughts other than we often ask, you know, was this the right time for it to stop? Did you feel like this really should have had one more year? Lawrence is saying no. <laughs> this I'm is shaking my head no. To be honest, if this had been a shorter season, I would have enjoyed it more because it went from like eight episodes to 10 episodes in the last season. I love the characters. I loved hanging out with them. But the storytelling, it felt a little shaggy to me. But this is a good place to end it. Like, this is a good three-season arc. Good show. I liked it a lot. Not a bad idea yeah. when you have high school kids to actually wrap it up while they're yeah. still we don't relatively need to see high school kids. Reservation, reservation dogs, 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 the college years. The, the next generation. No. No. This, this is all shows. saved by the Bell references. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> which I've seen every single episode of. Me too. I loved it so much. Oh my gosh. Go Bayside. Go Bayside. <laughs> we might have to have an episode. We, we can talk about that in the after talk. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love Save any by the final, Bell so any much. Any final thoughts, Al, about this, this type of thing? I mean, now I'm just thinking about Save by the Bell, which is deeply unfair because this is a great show. And has it been successful? Lots of people watched it. Yeah, it's been successful critically. It's been successful. Yeah, it's been successful You've got critically. Three, three seasons, so the, let's have lots more shows like it. I think the big victory for the show is that it was interesting. It was funny. It was really sweet. It was incredibly smart. And the big selling point was just let's let some native people tell their own story without anyone else really much getting in the way. And it works incredibly well. So let's have a lot more shows like it. And so, a bunch of shitty shows <laughs> following in its footsteps. No, things are only shitty when people get in the way. We'll see. Well, thanks to all you. Thanks for listening. Yes, we'll keep going in, in the after talk if people can stick around a little bit. Thank I'll you. talk more about Save by the Bell. It's going to be really, really interesting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So long, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Hey, we're now in the after talk. Have we talked about Saved by the Bell in that? I Yo, found do you guys it remember that oil spill cringe, episode? Fucking cringe inducing thing I've ever seen. You, oh my I gosh. Do, no, 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 no. I really talk about this. Do you guys remember the episode where it was an oil spill and I think a duck died or something and it was really sad and it made me cry and it made me an environmentalist for like a year? Wow. No, wow. Saved the by the Bell changed know. lives. It changed lives, guys. I <laughs> love that show. I'm that was probably how... my formative understanding of American culture. They, they needed more those... black characters. They needed more black characters. But maybe that's, the way, characters? maybe that's the way that California yeah, one was. Sarah is... can let us know. <laughs> no, California has more black people than that. But yeah, that was the ca- the casting. That was the casting. It was like, oh, here's a group of kids. We'll make it diverse by putting one person of color in there. What no, they had AC Slater too. AC was his, was Latino. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. That's right. It was very diverse. Very cutting edge. Relatively. No, nah, it was not at all. <laughs> it wasn't at all. <laughs> I guess this is sort of like, I mean, did everybody watch, all of you watch Brady Bunch at some point, religiously? Brady Bunch never made its way over, over to the UK. Really? We didn't get Brady Bunch. We didn't get a bunch of like really successful sitcoms never got an audience in the UK. Like uh, Family Ties never came here. What are some other? We never had Leave It to Beaver or any of that shit. Did the Cosby yeah. Show get o- get over there? Cosby Show we had. Well, you guys had your own shitty Leave It to Beaver type things, right? I mean, N- no, but we did have the show that Sanford and Son was originally based on. Was a British show. Oh, really? Called Steptoe and Son. Oh, how funny. I have never seen that. I need to watch it. it, it does it feature black characters? No, no, no. It's, uh, it's. I mean, it's a scrapyard, a junk, a junkyard dealer and his son. They're just like flat broke. And I need to watch. I had no idea. I had no idea it was based on something like but it, that. It's a super interesting show with, an, with, with a cool story. Well, not really cool story, but the main actor in it was like the great theatrical star of his time. And he was going to go on to do great things. And then he landed this TV show. And it became, partly because of his performance in it, by far the most popular TV show anywhere probably in the world at that point. And he kind of financially had to keep doing it. He never got an option <laughs> to stop. And he resented the hell out of it. And it, it like it killed his serious acting career because he got typecast as a comedic actor. 
And so it's just, it's this incredible story of someone becoming like the nation's favorite comic actor and hating every minute of it. <laughs> it's like his version of the golden uh, handcuffs, right? Something like that. What about Fresh Prince? Did you get Fresh Prince over in Britain? Oh yeah, we love Fresh Prince about like, man, the, why don't he want me, man? That I, I wept like a baby. I was a child, but <laughs> it still makes me laugh. <laughs> that and the time that he almost accidentally, that he puts Carlton in hospital with his, uh, <laughs> yeah I remember that I probably shouldn't be laughing but that shit was funny it's almost like these sorts of shows don't so much need a discussion in our format as uh, therapy that is <laughs> like the guy that we had on Lane that we had on who has a show where they go through every home improvement episode like clearly that did that show did something to him as a child that he then feels the need to so I could see doing a Brady Bunch episode by episode podcast if I, you know, was inclined to add another show to my life and, and that was, but I don't know. I don't know. We, we were going to have, it was on our list. I was going to try to get my sister involved. She decided she did not want to do that as a professional <laughs> lawyer, but maybe she'll quit her job again and she'll, she'll want to do that. But I wouldn't want to make Al in retrospect, watch this show. It's actually so objectively bad. And it's, it's really a, stupid. It's the same with Saved by the Bell. Is I I know you, so you two of you really that was formative for you, but for me it was just the the thing that I could not watch more than four minutes of. It would just make me want to claw out of my skin. I it, it just embarrassed <laughs> me so much. I just hated the humor so much. How and I watched old are a you, lot Mark? of crap. How old are you? How old are you? Because I'm fifty two. I'm I was too old for it. I was too old for it, though. I was because I'm 51 and I was too old for it. I watched it in college. It was just like, eh, I'm going to sit here and watch this and not do my homework. What dumb crap did you watch when you were age appropriate, Mark? I mean, that's yeah. So Brady Bunch and I Dream of Jeannie. And I did watch even Leave it to Beaver. Not crazily. Those were in reruns. Like for us, like our dumb crap was... Three's company, or sort of, what was the one with, what you talking about, Willis? Yeah, that one? Uh, Different Strokes. Oh, different Strokes. And but that wasn't dumb. That was a good-ass show, man. I, I disagree with you, man. That show was good. That show <laughs> had great things to say about race. That was a great show. Wonderful show. Gary Coleman is a, is, a, is, a, is a comedic treasure. What about Who's the Boss? I'm thinking of that, you know, the character from Community who teaches the class about um, Who's the boss? Oh my goodness! Sitcoms. It's all that era. I love Judith Light though. Judith Light is yeah. She's like done some crazy stuff as an older person, dramatic roles. But yeah, the stain of Tony Danza was fine in Taxi, and then with with Who's the boss? Uh, ugh, <laughs> that is another cringe-inducing. <laughs> not. I still watch a lot of it. <laughs> I'm not going to say was, I didn't. was Happy Days good. I remember Happy. Was that a good show? I liked it. I loved it at the time, but I think, no, it was not a good and show. And Laverne and Shirley. Oh, Laverne and Shirley. I loved Laverne and Shirley. I think my mom loved Laverne and Shirley, too. I think I would watch it. Probably say <laughs> retroactively because of the Lenny and Swiggy, like that they were like legitimately talented improv comedians Yeah, that were put in this otherwise pretty formulaic show with a, maybe even just a laugh track. I don't know. I haven't tried to rewatch happy days in a in a systematic <laughs> just leave it back there Joni loves Chachi another little gem yeah, holy well, crap yeah. Judith Light has done a lot of shit she was in Poker she's done Face, so much American Horror Stories a politician holy crap she did a lot of stuff she's she good. started out in soaps 
Well, she made the transition. Oh, she was an ugly Betty. I remember her. She was cl- she was Claire Mead and ugly Betty. I remember her. What else is on your minds as far as things? There's you're a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, it's on Hulu. Um, it's called what is it called? I wrote it down so I can remember it. No one will save you. It's a really good. It's a it's an alien. It's like an alien invasion movie. But here's what's interesting about it. It's all done silently. There's no dialogue whatsoever. It's all silent. Really, really well done. Huh. Really, really good. Very well reviewed. I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't expect it to enjoy it as much as I, as I liked it. The only thing I've heard about is is two reviews that said this is awful. <laughs> so, so no, no. Look at it again. Look at it again. But I, st- I'm cu- I'm curious enough that I want to watch it. And one, I don't know if you mentioned it to me or I just saw things in the press. But I did end up watching that Skinnamarink, which is oh my god! It's so, I do not like that movie. I do not like that movie. <laughs> to to warn you, like that, it starts the whole thing starts off as if shot completely amateurishly with the camera just thrown on the ground, not focused on anything, and you can just sort of hear that there's some stuff going on. And I thought like oh, this is just going to be the intro to the movie. And then the kids are going to be adults reflecting on what... No, this it's is the, the whole movie, movie. That it's the like the slowest movie. parts of David Lynch. <laughs> and it's kids talking like... Like, it's, it is so annoying, that movie. But for some reason, people really enjoy it. Like, they really enjoy the movie. I, do, I don't get it. I don't get that at all. Maybe you have to take certain drugs. And yeah, I know you're supposed to, to like surrender yourself to the atmosphere. Whereas I was to the point of, I'm going to fast forward a little. Like, is anything happening yet? Is anything happening yet? Nothing <laughs> happens. Nothing happens. I do not like that movie. Didn't like it at all. <laughs> that is a horror movie, Sarah, that you can watch and you won't be scared at all. You'll be bored. <laughs> okay. Oh, You'll be bored. It's like a beginner level horror movie. It's like a kid level just a bad horror, horror movie. movie. <laughs> it sounds like a, it is a bad one. And like anybody that like takes a creative chance. So I, I guess I respect it in the abstract, but it was not an enjoyable experience. <laughs> That's exactly that what you want to hear from someone when you make a movie, isn't it? I respect it in the abstract. <laughs> I like that you did it, but I don't want it to be in the room I, with I it. I like ever. that you did it, but I do not like it. I like that you tried. Oh, but guess what? The writer strikes over. We're going to get TV again. Oh Yay! my gosh, yes. We ratified it. We're good to go, man. Very happy. Now I just need the actors to come back. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And the government's going to shut down. In the UK, this doesn't matter to you guys. Um, but the government's going to oh, shut matter, down. It matters a little bit. I guess a little bit, yeah. I, I think this will be resolved by the time this posts. So I don't know. I don't know if we, you think we want to be too. But the government, no, the government shutdown is going to happen. The government shutdown is going to happen. I don't see it happen. I don't see it them finding a way not. This not happening. It's going to happen. I'm just saying, we'll I hope it is not still going on. This is still not a live issue three weeks from now, whenever this thing actually drops. This it, it may be. <laughs> looking at Kevin McCarthy, it may be an issue. Mm-hmm. It's going to last longer than the righteous strike. Do you guys find an enter- as entertainment, I felt the need this morning to watch at a very fast speed the second Republican debate, even though it has no consequence for anything. <laughs> right. I just feel like I recorded these it. characters I are it. kind of interesting and I'm just, I like to see what are they bickering about and I don't know. There's some some morbid fascination, even though it, you know it's all just a giant train wreck, more so than usual. <laughs> I paid some attention to the first one, but because it was just like, okay, but can I remember that it might come up in a pub quiz one time? So let me be exposed <laughs> to the the names of the people who are going to lose to Donald Trump, and then uh, yeah, then I just have that in the memory. But no, 
I didn't even know there was a second debate. Was it interesting? Did you learn anything about the policy differences? Uh, no, I mean, but it was just, it was the same except more talking over each other. It was like the people that got marginalized last time were like, God damn it, I'm not going to be marginalized this time. And if that means I have to just <laughs> talk out of turn constantly, then I'm going to do that. And so like, it was everybody doing that. And it was. <laughs> but there's never any learning done during those debates. We don't learn anything about their policies. Right, but we learned how how assertive they are, such that Tim Scott seemed after the first one to just be nothing, that he just was left in the dust. And this one, he like asserted himself. And, you know, maybe he's still, you know, he, his, he could get that 2% of the... <laughs> <laughs> he's like Connor from, from Succession. <laughs> I'm just getting to the end of a rewatch of, of The West Wing for the first time in a really long, uh, long time. And I just recently had that episode which was the one they filmed like the debate one that they filmed live between Alan Alder and Jimmy Smith when they're the presidential candidates at the end and it's really interesting because it's that last season really funny because Alan Alder is the better actor and he's the better debater in a live tv format and he's in a lot of ways the more likable character but then he's kind of partially responsible for a nuclear accident, and that's why he doesn't win the election. Well, I've never seen The West Wing, so you're ruining Me either. Really? Never seen it. It was like the never biggest show it. in the world for a while. It was. I remember when it was big. Right. And we did I an episode. I think I was in college or something, and I didn't want to be dealing with, like, old white people shit. Oh, but it's fair. It's very. I'm sure Hillary, Hillary Clinton loves that show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did an Aaron Sorkin episode, so I made myself like watch a season of The West Wing, I think, was all I got through. You know, it was enough to get the style. It's a really great show, but it's because Aaron Sorkin really knows how to write TV. And the only it, thing I think about Aaron Sorkin is, is talking fast and walking. It seems every movie, TV show he talk. does, the walk and talk people seems, are walking yeah. and talking. It's all about the war and talk. I've read several things about the sort of how it feeds into the these sort of liberal fantasies of the way that the the evil Republicans are cast in the show as the Democrats will win a moral victory over them in every circumstance. And it just that there's something counterproductive about having this sort of wish fulfillment in the culture that that is. <laughs> there's an element of that kind of the bigger fantasy though is that there are people of good conscience on all sides who when they just like get together and try and work for the good of the nation can just get can get stuff done somebody's cynical <laughs> oh yeah have you seen have you i'm sorry were we not just talking about the second republican debate <laughs> yeah we were we were we definitely well were. and the i mean it's just it's a, a feature of our system that like if the incumbent or the vice president wants to run, they get to run. It's like, oh, they've, they've, it's their due. Even as soon as Bob Dole or somebody like stepping out there, like, no fucking way is Bob Dole going to win. Like, like that they've doomed their whole election cycle just because of this sort of deference to tradition. And now we are stuck in that on the Democrat side, which, uh, I don't know. I, I don't feel like we should have the same conversation that everybody's having <laughs> everywhere else in the world yeah, we about probably this, should. but. What impact is it going to have on pop culture? Is yes. it going to is a second is the second Trump presidency going to be as insufferable in terms Stop of liberal it. entertainment oh. as the first one was? La, 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 la. I'm, I'm going to call it. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. He'll be in jail by the time he, he uh, oh, goes into the. Please, please. 
All right, I guess we could have this conversation a little bit that, that, that the whole world is happening. But my my <laughs> thought since he won the first time was that he only won by a goddamn fluke and he never had a fucking chance even in 2020. So that's what I thought going into 2020 and that's what I still think. And uh but I maybe I'm just a rude. That dude almost won, man. Like <laughs> like it was it like he it, it was it wasn't close but it was closer than it should have been. Like it was I was sweating bullets, man, in 2020. It, it wasn't. It, yeah, it was. It was closer than it should have been. Joe Biden is four years older than he was four years ago. He's oh. not going to campaign well. So is Trump, though. They're both old guys. Trump doesn't need to campaign. He doesn't need to show up. Yeah, but but people. Ob- he just needs. He just needs to keep getting fucking arrested for shit. People's objections to old Joe Biden are not going to make them suddenly be okay with Trump. Like it's not. Right. It's just no, nothing. No, but they're going to make him. It's going to make people stay at home. No one's getting excited about Joe Biden. That's the thing I'm scared of. Right. Me too. I don't know. I think Trump is such a negative effect that there's no way people are staying home. Like whatever, he could be running against cheese toast and he's just so bad and so I'm, obviously bad I'm and it's worried. so stained on the American, you know, that like exactly. no fucking way it, it, are we going to go through that again. Exactly how it happened the first time is that people underestimated how little people were willing to hold their nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, so it would be nice if we actually had a functional way of of of, of having primaries. Yes. <laughs> then then Biden wouldn't have won last time. But look, good good luck, guys. But we just need a goddamn Tom Hanks to run, don't we? Isn't that the, the thing? <laughs> like it should be the Rock. The Rock needs to get off his ass. Yes, and Oprah. Save Super, the country. Superstar athletes and actors and stuff that should be like a a career path that they're aware of taylor swift should know right now that if she <laughs> steers herself correctly she will be the goddamn president in she 20 years fucking if she wants i'm not voting for i remember guys. reading an interview with will smith in some like teen pop magazine when i was like 12 where in which he hinted that he would maybe like to run for president one day <laughs> Maybe he just shouldn't slap not somebody, anymore. and then uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's definitely not getting that. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. That ship has sailed. He'll be lucky to get another big time movie. But it would be it would be hard. You know, you get so many as a big celebrity the ability to be eccentric and excessive and to give that all up for the very slim chance that maybe you'll run for office someday. You know, it just doesn't seem. Like it would be in most people's rational. Because yeah, maybe interest. you'll be Ronald Reagan, but maybe you'll be Jesse Ventura. <laughs> yeah, or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger has done that. just fine. He's done just fine. My dad and I graduated from the same college. In the signatures on our diplomas, my dad had Ronald Reagan on his, and my signature was Arnold Schwarzenegger because they were the governors the times when we graduated. That's California. For so you. where's the new crop of actors? <laughs> That's Matthew McConaughey doesn't he want to run for governor he's going to be on Yellowstone so he doesn't have time for that I would be interested to see what the polling is on Matthew McConaughey because <laughs> I said me too a man who gets, really who gets naked and plagues bongs and smokes weed that's what, he, might get, he might get elected exactly he actually might get elected <laughs> but isn't that kind of the problem that people had with the Texas guy who just ran for senator twice the young guy who's yeah. in his 50s 
Why don't I remember his name? He was like the Great White Hope. For <laughs> this is hilarious that we can't remember his name right now because I know. he didn't successfully make us. Well, I have COVID, so I have an excuse. <laughs> he had a really distinctive name too. I'm very embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Keep yelling it at your podcast listeners. <laughs> That's yeah, all right. Everybody else is saying. But yeah, it's I guess you never time. know until somebody actually floats it, whether whether their particular brand. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that the Trump brand as a celebrity would have been. But like, what about Howard Stern? Is that somebody that could run <laughs> now for something? Bruce Springsteen. I, oh, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen definitely could. He would definitely be able to run. Howard Stern, I... I don't think so. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because wouldn't get elected because he was like a shock jock or if it's because he's Jewish. Well, seriously, if he had, both. If, had a Jewish probably president, both. probably both. Maybe he could get elected if he had gone Republican rather than what he's actually done recently. And, you know, if that, that the kind of asshole that his who is his original audience are the Trump voters now. And now he like is. Yeah, I'm not with you guys. <laughs> I, I actually like humane uh, social policies and not trumping behavior. So, I, you know, maybe that is just now he has a, a much more select appeal. <laughs> All right, we need to Oprah. Okay. Let's yes, come back to let's, Oprah. Let's, let's, let's Oprah. oh, oh, uh, Oprah, we're entering Oprah. that land of the exorcist. And I just started listening to the audiobook today. That is read by the oh. author. It's actually just even on YouTube, if you can stand listening to that. And I, I guess, so I'm, I'm unsure of it, how much. Uh, I mean, so far, not, it it's not great. I don't really know. I'm not too far. I'm not far enough into it. But no, I, it doesn't strike me as having particularly high literary merit. But it, this was a, a groundbreaking book that made a splash that then happened to have a movie that was not shit, which is amazing. Masterpiece, probably. Beto O'Rourke. That's the name of the guy whose name we can remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, thank oh, God. Oh, stick around long enough, somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna think of that. I just noticed as I was looking today or something, this new edition for the 50 year anniversary of the original Exorcist movie. It's like a new extended director's cut, which I guess one can see in the theater or purchase if you care about. I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna watch it. I'm going to make a point of that. I was going to rewatch it anyway. And so I'm going to make a point of watching. I'm going to fly to Philadelphia and me and Sarah are going to go and watch the extended version together (laughs) in the movie theater in a dark room. I cannot wait. Looking forward to it. Let's go. Extended version. Let's go. So Lawrence, you, you, you are familiar enough with the sequels, right? Which ones are actually worth our time? Uh, The sequels. Your time. Part three is really good. Part three is really good. Um, so three was based on a, a, a book by the guy, right? Two actually, is just some back. random. I take that. Weird, back. I, l- l- weird l- let me reverse that. Let me reverse that. Part three is not a good movie, but it has a great scene, a great scary scene, <laughs> okay. but not a good movie. I think the prequels are both pretty good. I love the prequels quite a bit um, for different reasons. One of them is Paul Schrader. The other one is written is directed by I think Lynn. Harlan? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, are they um, even in the? Are they in the same timeline? Are there prequels they are in, in a the, row? They're in the same timeline. Okay, it's just that they gave the direct the one director money and made it, and they didn't like that movie, and so they gave another uh, director money, and he made it, and then they released them both. It's a quirk of nature. So they're telling the same story. They're telling the same story. It's a <laughs> it's a quirk of history. It's a really weird thing. But that anyway, is no. nutty. But honestly, part three is fine. You can enjoy that if you want to. 
for me, it's all about the first one. Uh, and I'm really interested to see what they're going to do because the same guys who did the Halloween remakes are doing the new Exorcist movie. And so I'm interested to see what they're going to do with that. All right. Sounds good. Well, see you Sounds all good. later. Feel better, Thanks, Sarah. Seriously, feel better. I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.